0: Then this evening in your Bibles, we would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll be reading from verse 26 through 40 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1323. After we read from that section of Scripture, we'll turn our attention also to the Belgic Confession this evening to article 32 in the Forms and Prayers book. You can find that article on page 188. We continue with the belgic confession as it makes its way through the truth of the word of god especially as that truth relates to the church Uh, the church is the gathered people of the lord jesus christ those who have been called out of this world by god's redemptive grace and those who are to be gathered together uh, corporately as the body uh, of the church of the lord jesus christ Uh, we read then as paul addresses the church here in corinth in verse 26 of chapter 14. Hear now together the reading of the Lord. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Thus far our reading from the Word of God this evening we turn then to Article 32 of our Belgian Confession. It's given this title, The Order and Discipline of the Church, and it states as follows, We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, let us simply set forth this axiom truth. God is a God of order. And God being a God of order would have his house, that is his church, also be well ordered. Uh, That is very plainly stated for us in the text which we read this evening, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order And you can tie that together with what is stated in verse 26 of the Scripture passage that we read. Let all things be done for edification. Edification has this idea of of building up, of building the Christian community, of building the Christian congregation up in the most holy faith. These two go together. When things in the church are done decently and in good order... Then there will be a suitable context for edification. To say it more simply, no one grows well in a disordered home." And so these articles in the Belgic Confession are, are not just some irrelevant appendix to what really, really matters although many in our own day, even within the broader churches, would consider ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church as being just that, an appendix, not really that which is very important. But the doctrine, the truth, the truth of the Word of God, as it bears on the life of the Christian church and also the local Christian church, is of vital importance. It's vitally important for our own spiritual well-being and it's vitally important for our children's spiritual well-being but most importantly it's vital for the glory and the honor of the lord our god and so motivated by a desire to glorify god as well as being motivated by a desire to be used by god to continue to uphold a culture that is conducive to spiritual growth Uh, We consider together this evening our belief concerning the order within the church. We'll do so by noticing, first of all, the authority for the order, and then secondly, the categories in the order, and then thirdly, the purpose of the order. And as we go through this sermon this evening, this consideration this evening, uh, and this is true for every sermon— But I especially want to draw your attention to our responsibility to imitate the Bereans. The Bereans are recorded in Acts as being noble listeners because in many ways they listened to what Paul had to say with open Bibles. Now, I fully recognize that they did not have the 66 canonical books that we ourselves have. But what the Bereans did is they they heard what Paul had to say. And they then took the Scriptures that they had, and they asked themselves, in light of the Scriptures, is what Paul saying true? And I ask simply that for you and for myself this evening. What we say tonight, test it according to open Bibles. If it squares with what we find in our Bibles, then believe it. If it doesn't square with what you find in your Bible, then obviously reject it. First of all, then, the authority for the order is an appointed government underneath a sole master, Within the church and within the local churches, and this is true also of the state, but we're not talking yet about the state. Uh, the Belgian Confession has an article that deals with the civil magistrate uh, that's coming. But when we talk about the church, the gathered people of God, we must underscore, and we have done this in recent sermons, but we do it again tonight, that Jesus Christ has all authority. Absolutely all authority. We do not have any authority in and of ourselves. Now we live in an age, and I suppose this has been true of humanity ever since the days of Nimrod, the mighty hunter. We live in a day and an age in which we like to exalt our pretended authority. We like to think that we are captains of our own destiny. We like to think that we are self-governed. We like to think that we are the end of all. But Scripture is very clear, the words of Jesus Christ. You can think, for example, of Matthew 28, verse 18. In his office or in his position as the one only mediator, having accomplished the work of redemption through his steps of humiliation and exaltation, just prior to his ascension, when he would be seated at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ makes the statement, All authority has been given unto me. All authority. Notice the comprehensive scope of that. All authority given by the triune God and compressed, you might say, in its exercise upon the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth Now this ought to produce within our hearts both the response of humility but also the response of confidence. And you might ask, well, how do these go together? How does humility and confidence go together? In this way, that we ought to be characterized by humility when it comes to ourselves. But confidence when it comes to our Lord. And maybe as you face and anticipate the week that lies ahead, And maybe young people, perhaps some of you are a bit apprehensive about starting school and the social pressures, and maybe there's all sorts of butterflies in your stomach and things like that. On a very practical note, you can remind yourself that Jesus Christ has all authority. And that there's not a single thing that will happen or can happen apart from His loving care. So maybe you have to face that school that causes you some anxieties or those classmates that cause some anxieties or those subjects that cause some anxieties. You can do so quoting to yourself, Jesus said all authority had been given unto him in heaven and in earth. And what a comfort this is for life within the church, because anyone who's lived life within the church for some time knows that there are difficult situations and there are difficult issues. And especially to the office bearers, uh, both those current office bearers, but also those who might be called to office, uh, who are confronted with all sorts of insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And you know what it is to bear office, and you know what it is to bear office with fear and trembling. And certainly we do have this fear and trembling, but how do we carry out our offices? How do we carry out the work that the Lord has given us to do, reminding ourselves, well, the one who is the head of the church has all authority. Yes, it seems like the world is raging against us. I sometimes wonder to myself, how long will it be? before the world comes and persecutes us for the message that they deem as being intolerable? How long can we continue to preach the Scriptures unashamedly in a countercultural fashion uh, before the radio ministry is shut down not by a strike of lightning, but by perhaps some decree of a magistrate? We don't know the answer, but we do know this truth. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 verse 19 echoes the same truth when Jesus says uh, to the apostles representing the office bearers of the church, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And based upon those two passages, Matthew 28 clearly reveals that Christ has all authority. And Matthew 16 reveals that Christ delegates the exercise of that authority to those who are legitimate office bearers in the church. So that when those office bearers exercise their office, in line with Scripture, they do so not based upon their own authority, but based upon the authority of Jesus Christ as the one and only mediator. And so it's important then that we recognize that Jesus Christ reveals his will for the churches in Holy Scripture, and that there are principle truths revealed within the pages of the Holy Scripture that serve as the only foundation for the establishment of ordinances, if you want to call it that, or or laws or rules that govern the life of a congregation. It's not as if a, a group of men sit around, or at least it should not be, as if a group of men sit around and go, well, what do you want to do? Well, I think I want to do this. Well, I think I want to do that. At the end of the day, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is what does Christ will. And where do we find the identification of the will of Christ? In the pages of Holy Scripture and in the principles that are clearly revealed within those pages of Holy Scripture. Because Christ is the sole master, the only master, the exclusive master. And he exercises his rule and his will through the Word of God. So we are called continually to be reforming, not just in a one-time act that took place perhaps 26 years ago with the establishment of the United Reformed Churches in North America, or some 500 years ago in the Protestant Reformation, but we are always to be reforming according to the Word of God. And at times this reformation will bring perhaps even a personal pain. Sometimes things need to be done in the church that we ourselves personally don't want to do. Is this not the very essence of following after the lordship of Jesus Christ? If any of us thinks that the Christian life never demands something that our will doesn't want, and then we don't really understand the Christian life. And this is why also our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, but the will of the triune God. And this is why we must take great care not to deviate from Christ ordinances. Not deviate by adding to what Christ wills, nor by taking away from what Christ wills. Lest we become guilty of what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 15, verse 9 and 10 of the Pharisees, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And why was their worship vain? They taught as doctrines the commandments of men. So everything that we teach, everything that we do, must have a biblical precept undergirding it. I want to uh, give a quote this evening uh, from P.Y. Young, and you'll notice that I quote him somewhat frequently. The, the, the main reason is uh, he's written a commentary on the Belgic Confession. Uh, The reason I quote him tonight is because P.Y. DeYoung, although being dead, still speaks, and he says things with a concise boldness that I don't have the gift uh, of. He says in relationship to this point, the question is never what the individual likes or dislikes. Any move in this direction opens the church to the tyranny of Of a few fanatic spirits. Let me read that again. The question is never what the individual likes or dislikes. Any move in this direction opens the church to the tyranny of a few fanatic spirits. He goes on and he says All who, in the name of good conscience, object to certain church ordinances are under obligation before God and man to defend their position biblically. The statement's based upon the reality that Christ has all authority, also in the church, and that he delegates the exercise of his authority to men who are lawfully called to the offices in the church. And they must seek to establish those ordinances... And practices in the life of the local congregation that are only built and based upon the principal truths of the Holy Scriptures. And in this way, and only in this way, will a church be well ordered and suitable for spiritual edification. But you'll notice that we move into our second point the categories in the order. Belgic Confession Article 32 really speaks about two aspects of the life of the local congregation, uh, that of corporate worship and that of church discipline. And the exclusive authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it is exercised by those delegated to exercise that authority, the office bearers, is to be found first and foremost in the establishment of corporate worship. And, and, And let us just say, this has been said by many, many voices in the church, but let us say it again tonight. Worship is the ultimate reason for our existence. Now, there are many, many things that a local congregation can do and maybe even should do, but they all must be recognized as being subservient to the grand overall purpose of the church, that of the worship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, you might say, uh, is our reason for existence. And you see this based first and foremost in the apostolic examples of the early New Testament church, but you also see it when you look in that glorious picture that is given us of the heavenly multitude in the book of Revelation. Why do they exist? What are they doing? They're worshiping the triune God for who the triune God is. And so we need to be continually weaned off of this self-focus. You see, when the eyes of the congregation are taken off of themselves and fixed upon the glory and the radiance of the triune God, then what I want becomes very, very, very minute matter. How can a group of people bicker and infight about what they want when they're all gazing, so to speak, into the infinite glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Have you ever had it where you've stood before some natural wonder, maybe some magnificent view uh, in the landscape of God's creative glory, and, and you just tried to take it all in, and, and maybe moms and dads, and no disrespect to you kids, but maybe in such a moment, you know, the, the kids started asking all kinds of really pointless questions, and you, and you wanted to say to them them, just, just quiet, just look, just watch, just take this all in, Do you ever wonder if that's something of what the church is like? Here here we come into the presence of the triune God, the eternal God, the infinite God, His grace and His love and His mercy and His kindness. And there's all these little quibbles going on. Well, I really don't like that. Well, I really didn't like this. Well, I really thought we should do that. Well, I really think we should do these things. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and he is to be worshipped in the church. This is also, and we continually check our motives, and we don't pretend that our motives are always perfect, but this is also why we are so passionate about worshipping on the Lord's Day. When the consistory, when the elders, when they, when they call for a corporate worship service, this is not congregation just mere traditionalism. This is men who have been delegated the authority by Christ Himself to call the followers of Christ and say, in essence, come, let us assemble ourselves together. And let us enter into the presence of God in a very particular way on this festive day of rest. And let us praise His name and let us glorify Him together. And so also, perhaps in passing, but a point that is certainly applicable, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together is the cry of the New Testament church. And you and I uh, had, had better have a very, very substantial reason, and there are substantial reasons. You can think of illness. You can think of the elderly who are infirm. There are substantial reasons for why a worship service is missed. But imagine, imagine if Christ himself came and knocked on your door and said, I, through the elders, called for an assembling of the church together to worship me. Where were you? What would your answer be? Well, Lord, I was seeing your majesty in the realm of creation. Well, that's not what the elders called you to do. At that point in time, they called for an assembling of ourselves together because worship, corporate worship, is the high watermark of the life of the Christian church. If that is understood, then what we do in worship is also regulated. And here we have in mind what is commonly, and I hope that we are somewhat familiar with this, and perhaps uh, this is something that... uh, we as elders should do more investigation, how familiar we are with what's known as the regulative principle of worship. I know it's a big term. It just simply means that the Word of God regulates or controls or governs what we do in worship. Here again, we, we, we don't, we dare not have some worship committee sit around a table and say, well, I think this would be a good idea. I think that would be neat. I think this would attract the masses. What we need is Men who fear the Lord with open Bibles saying, what would the Lord have us to do when we come into this holy hour of worship? And so we make distinctions between elements and circumstances. The elements are those things in worship. Examples is not an exhaustive list, but examples is the reading of the Word of God. And you find in the New Testament both precepts, commandments, saying do this, and you also find examples of the New Testament church doing just these things, as well as the Old Testament church. So, for example, congregational singing. This isn't some novel idea uh, that a committee somewhere came along with. Uh, Where did the whole concept of the congregational singing come from? Well, you find it already there in the Old Testament. That's why we have the the Psalter, the book of Psalms. You can think also of the giving of tithes and offerings. This isn't just a convenient time uh, in which to collect the funds necessary for the maintenance of the church, but rather it is the fulfillment of the apostolic command when you come together there be a collection in addition for other needs also for the needy and so what we do in worship is not the outflow of our own imagination but rather a humble submission to those elements and only those elements that we find prescribed and described in the new testament especially now there are indeed circumstances of where we meet uh, the circumstances of whether we have uh, an organ accompany the music or a piano accompany the music, And, and there we do not find clear scriptural directives, and so those are based upon the collective sanctified wisdom, but not the elements. The elements must be revealed by Scripture. The circumstances They can be addressed by the collective sanctified wisdom of those in positions of office and leadership. And let us just simply note that God hates strange fire within worship. The reference there, of course, is to an Old Testament example of Nadab and Abihu who got innovative in how they would worship the Lord their God. And they presented profane fire or strange fire which the Lord had not commanded And in an ironic form of judgment, the Lord consumed them with fire. Have you ever wondered if perhaps the reason why the Western church is finding itself more and more emptied is because the Western church has gone after the imaginations of men and trying to come up with strategies to fill the churches? Wouldn't that be ironic? Committees that sat together and said, let's think of novel and new ways to fill the churches. Perhaps were those very same committees that had to be confronted with the question, well, no one's coming anymore. What are we now going to do? Call it quits. Here again to the law and to the testimony, to the word of God, to establish corporate worship. And if we thought that that perhaps was difficult, The second area in which we believe there must be biblical order is in church discipline. If you've kept your Bible open, if you're so inclined, uh, we would reference you to Matthew 18 verse 15. In this passage of Scripture, in my times in the ministry, I've come to believe that this passage of Scripture is one of the clearest and yet one of the most neglected passages of Scripture. Just notice when you begin reading Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17, that of course the church is filled with sinners. Sometimes you'll meet someone and they'll say, I don't have anything to do with the church because they're hypocrites there. They're sinners there. Of course, there are sinners in the church. And you could even go further and say that there are sinners in the church who sin against one another. Christ is not surprised by this. He knows those whom He has redeemed. He knows what we're like. And twice in the New Testament, Christ specifically uses the word church, and this is one of them. In verse 15, it's so clear. If your brother, that would be your spiritual brother, not necessarily your biological brother, if your brother sins against you, there's the the situation. Don't be surprised if your brother sins against you. Don't harbor bitterness if your brother sins against you. Don't just let it stew over years and years and decades and decades if your brother sins against you. Has your brother sinned against you? That is violated one of the commandments listed in the second table of the law. Has he dishonored your legitimate authority? Has he stolen from you? Has he misused your name, ruining your reputation? Don't be surprised. And don't sit inactive and just stew on it. Notice what the text says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. A mind-blowing concept. Your brother has sinned against you. You take the action. You take the initiative. Now you have something to do. And it's very clear what you ought to do. You ought to go and tell. And most of us would be, oh, we've got this. I'm going to go and I'm going to tell for sure. I'm going to tell the person in front of me and the person behind me. I'm going to tell my neighbor. I'm going to tell everyone. That's not what Christ says. Go and tell him. And now, of course, you could, in this case, easily interchange the pronouns. If your sister sins against you, go and tell her. But go and tell him, and notice what you tell him. Not just how you feel. Tell him his fault. Lovingly, humbly call him out. Say, this is the sin you committed against me. This is what you did. This is the light of the Word of God shining itself on what you did. And the verdict is, you sinned against me. And I'm here as your spiritual brother to tell you what you have done in love and in mercy. Now you think with me how many long-standing conflicts within the church could have been so easily resolved on day one if this text would be taken seriously as the authoritative word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, Jesus Christ gives this noted word of clarification, just between the two of you. Don't first go gather the support of public opinion. You know, d- d- don't even, and, and sometimes perhaps out of spiritual immaturity, direction is needed, but, but don't go and say, you know, I'm calling a bunch of my friends, just seeking spiritual direction here. So-and-so did this against me, and I'm just wondering what I should do. You don't need to make that phone call. You know what to do. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But now perhaps someone's pessimistic and Jesus anticipates this. What if he does not hear? Well, verse 16 gives the second step. And again, we should not be surprised if our brother will not hear. We ought to be incredibly thankful if he does hear. And if he acknowledges his sin, then there can be the expression of reconciliation. But what if he doesn't hear? What if he, what if he refuses to hear my fault that I have with him? Well, then, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Well, what if it still doesn't work? The third step. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, there are numerous other passages that we could cross-reference also, but one thing is clear, that Christian discipline... Can never be an option for a faithful church. And notice that Guido de Bray picks that up in the Belgian Confession at the very last article. To that end, excommunication, which is one aspect, the final step of Christian discipline, with all it involves, according to the Word of God, is optional, is required. If we are going to put Reformed in our church name, if we are going to say that we believe in the authority of Scripture, if we are going to say that we are going to stand on the old paths, then we must also be serious about exercising Christian discipline according to the Word of God for the purposes for which God gives Christian discipline, which are three, first and foremost, for the salvation of the one caught in sin. Church discipline is never just to rid the church of people that are undesirable. Church discipline has as one of its goals the salvation of the sinner who is entrapped in sin. And the church owes it to people who become trapped in sin to exercise Christian discipline for the sake of their soul. And that's why I would beg with elders, if I should fall in sin, please, for the sake of my soul, be faithful to the Word of God and exercise Christian discipline. Don't just wring your hands and say, oh, this is going to be difficult. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Surgeons, when they go into surgery, I think they probably recognize that it's difficult. But it's necessary. And not just for the salvation of the sinner, but also for the protection of the congregation. And here again, you can make an analogy to a surgeon who's going to cut in, and you might say, in a very difficult procedure, remove something that is harmful to the rest of the body. And you might ask a surgeon, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to remove this cancerous mass? And they might say to you, because if we don't, it will kill you. And so also, a little leaven influences the whole lump, and not only then for the salvation of the individual soul, but also for the salvation of the congregation. Christian discipline must be faithfully exercised according to the Word of God. Unless you just want to let a church rot. My father was a builder and he replaced many a rotten board. You know, water would get in here underneath the sill of a door or something like that. Also, termite damage. I mean, you can just sit there and you can just look at it. Oh, sure enough, water's getting underneath the sill. Or termites are in. Or you can get to work. Identify the problem. And for the well-being of the entire structure. If need be, cut out the rotten timber. The choice, ultimately, of course, is one that needs to be made. When there is habitual sin within the life of a member that is properly made known to the consistory, what are we going to do about it? Sit back and pretend that it's not there? Well, Imagine the foolishness. The doctor comes and says, well, Malignant cancer, you're just going to cover your eyes and plug your ears? And you go home and the wife says, what did the doctor say? Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's fine. I mean, look at me. Outward appearances, don't I look healthy and well? Of course you wouldn't do that. You'd say there's cancer. But we can operate. Remove the mass save the life but ultimately christian discipline is to be exercised for the glory of god the church belongs to the lord it is one holy catholic and apostolic church and it is only the faithful exercise of church discipline properly understood properly motivated that will preserve one holy catholic and apostolic church And so there is the summary of the purpose of the order. And we encourage you that we will be brief with our third point because it really ties in everything that we've said so far, or at least attempts to tie in. What is the purpose of this order? Well, you can go back, Uh, you can go back to the scripture reading. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in good order. So the purpose of biblical order in the church, recognizing the exclusive authority of Christ and that he has delegated that authority to office bearers legitimately called and that they exercise that authority, especially in regards to corporate worship and church discipline, all of this serves for an organized harmony because the church is made up of many members. The church is an organic body, and, and those members have a diversity. Diversity in age, diversity perhaps at least to some extent in some contexts more than in others, diversity in ethnicity, diversity also in personal wills, personal inclinations. And parents, and maybe boys and girls, have you ever had it maybe on vacation? You know, and if there's a multitude of children in the back of the vehicle and it comes time maybe to stop for lunch as you're traveling, I mean, how many parents are going to risk asking the question in the back, kids, where do you want to go for lunch? Because you know, you're probably, if you have five kids back there, you'll probably get six different responses, all different. And so maybe after a time or two of that, you recognize we need to have some unity Unless we're just going to let the kids scatter all throughout this town. And so decisions must be made to bring a unity in the midst of diversity. But those decisions must be made in order to accomplish the goal of the church, which is found there also in verse 26 let all things be done for edification. Let them be done decently, let them be done orderly, let the goal be that the church may be edified, that it might grow in the faith, that it might worship God. And not only then an organized harmony, but a unified godliness, a unified godliness an old saying, not original with me by any means, but an old saying that we do well to memorize is not a scriptural quotation, but it is a scriptural truth. Apostasy, and that is to fall away from true doctrine or true worship, true knowledge of God. Apostasy is always one generation away. Just one generation. And it breaks many, many of. A- parents heart to see the evidence of that in their own families you can see it in the old testament the fathers were gathered to the graves and another generation arose that did not know god nor the works which he had done the works of redemption and out of that ignorance another generation arose that then went after idolatry served the gods of the foreign lands and we certainly understand and we value what we call covenant theology, that God has made a promise that from one generation to another generation, a people would serve Him. But yet we also remember that, for example, in the days of the prophets, of a nation that would have numbered well in the multitudes of the millions, there were only 7,000 who had not been to knee to bail. The rest apostatized. And so our goal, of course, in dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His good providence, is that we might preserve godliness, the true knowledge of God, and the true worship of God, not only for us, but also for our children and our grandchildren. And so in closing, difficult matters… I leave you as I leave myself with one closing exhortation. Be a Berean. Go home with open Bibles. Examine if these things are indeed so. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture, but we do confess that sometimes this clarity cuts most to our hearts. And so we pray that we might not quickly revolt against hard teachings but that we might with humility come to the Word of God and pray for the insight of the Holy Spirit and humbly search the Scriptures. And Father, we pray for a spirit of continued reformation within our own hearts and within the heart of the Christian church so that your name might perpetually be honored and glorified and rightly praised and worshiped for Jesus' sake. Amen.